Good morning. Well, you can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the text that uh, has been mentioned as our sermon text for today. And as you, as you do that, I invite you to think about one of the great stories of American history, Lewis and Clark. Everybody's heard of Lewis and Clark. And uh, they, their story begins at the beginning of the 19th century, and they were commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson. So think early America. And the main mission was to find a route from the East Coast to the West Coast. That's what Jefferson was hoping for. He wanted to be able to establish trade there. And uh, there's a long history. We can't possibly get into all of it. There's no way. I mean, the, the Spanish and the French are involved. The Louisiana Purchase has just occurred. I mean, there's all these details. But think early American history trying to explore the full breadth of the American continent. And uh, Jefferson, in short, was trying to establish dominance uh, in the continent, trying to get ahead of threats, both foreign and domestic. Everything is kind of up for grabs. Nobody knows how things are going to settle out. So he commissions this really remarkable expedition. That's why we've all heard of it. So Lewis and Clark, these two guys with these kind of fitting histories for an expedition like that, and about 50 other men embark from the East Coast out to the West Coast. And they're well prepared. It's documented what they took with them. So they handpicked all these 50 men, picking the right guys for the job. Lewis actually underwent basic medical training, like quick training to be a, a medic, so to speak, not quite the doctor level, but I mean, they had all kinds of preparation. They had two boats, a large amount of rations, munitions, powder, supplies for trade, all the things for making maps, all kinds of clothing for all four seasons, everything you need for boat craft. They were super prepared. And their story is really a, a story of resilience, a story of perseverance, despite some really trying circumstances. Imagine just being out in the wilderness all the way from coast to coast, you and 50 guys, without any kind of technology or anything. This was not modern travel. This was a lot more difficult than that. And they had a lot of hardships through which they persevered. Some of them got dysentery, which is a bad deal. That's an intestinal inf infection, and often it would kill you, causing diarrhea. Some of them developed, most of them developed boils on their skin, and they would take grease or fat from a buffalo and slather themselves up to try to medicate these boils that they had. One of them died, tragically, a Mr. Charles Floyd. He still has a monument in Sioux City, Iowa. He died probably from appendicitis or maybe a ruptured appendix. They buried him there. There's a whole story with his tomb. But it was a rough go. That's, that's kind of the point. They were well prepared, and it was a rough road ahead. So why'd they go through all the trouble? Who would want to do that? They left ease, comfort, provision, safety, security, and they went on this tough road. Why'd they do that? And I think the short answer that anybody would give for something like that is that they said it was worth it. They had a goal. They were trying to do something great, something that each of them, for their own reasons maybe, thought was a worthwhile expedition no matter what they had to endure. So prepare and persevere. Prepare and persevere. Those are the dynamics that really characterize that expedition, and those are the same dynamics, of course, in our text for today. Paul's doing that for Timothy. Timothy, you will need to persevere. The road is going to be rocky. And, Timothy, let me help you prepare. 
Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we're weak. We tremble at suffering. We don't like it. We can't see the end of it. We're so short-sighted. And you're so sufficient. Jesus calls us to follow him, to suffer with him, to take up our cross and follow after him. We are so tempted to see that as bad and he says it's blessed. You should rejoice. So I pray you would change our minds, our thinking, and then I pray that you would change our hearts to show us the beauty of a suffering savior and the beauty of a suffering church. And I pray that you would equip us. You would fill up all our supply as you have already, but do it for us individually. Maybe rather show us that we are already adequately supplied. That's our prayer. We pray you'd help us. Pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're gonna look at our text today in three parts. We'll just briefly consider the context. It's very important. And then secondly, we'll look where Paul tells Timothy, hey, you're gonna have to swim upstream. It's gonna be hard. And then third, where Paul tells Timothy to gird up his loins. Maybe you know that phrase. I'll explain it later. But first, the context. Second, you're gonna have to swim upstream. And then third, Timothy, gird up your loins. So first, the context. Now, we talked in our discipleship hour earlier this morning about trying to understand authorial intent. So I just remind you that this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, not to a church directly, not to you directly even, if you take my meaning, but written to Paul, or oh, to Timothy, there it is, from Paul to Timothy, right? It's a letter from one man to another, from an apostle to a pastor. It's apostolic advice for pastoral ministry. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. The Spirit did inspire the word, and as we heard again this morning, there are applications to the church, without a doubt. I hope that he'll help us to make some of those today. God will. But I remind you, this is apostolic advice for a pastor. Second, this is Paul's final letter. Trey mentioned this last week. These are parting words. They have all the sobriety and gravitas of an impending death. Last words, like what you put on your tombstone. You have an epitaph, final words. That's this letter. Well, what's just been happening in the passage before our passage? What did we just hear? If I could summarize, Paul gave Timothy the warning that in the last days, it's gonna be really hard. There's some difficult days ahead. You, Timothy, are not going to emerge unscathed. You're gonna take some hits. You're gonna take some bullets. There's gonna be some suffering. You will have scars when it's all said and done. Men like these ancient Egyptian magician, magicians will rise up and they will challenge you and they will seek to explain away your truth, your doctrine that you know is true, but there's gonna be some opponents fighting against you. The wicked men are gonna do their wicked things and you will have to endure. In other words, Paul's preparing Timothy. He's getting him ready. He's preparing him. It would have been awful to go back to Lewis and Clark if these guys were expecting ease and comfort. Man, would they not have been disappointed and been the worse off for it? No, no. 
they ought to be prepared and be able to count the cost and look where they're headed. And so Paul does that good and sober service for Timothy. And then I also want to point out that there's opponents, there's troublers, there's problem people doing bad things. They're posers, they're hucksters, they peddle the word of God for the sake of selfish gain. They're gonna fleece the sheep like people in this room. They're gonna take advantage of them. You maybe have heard of the scams you get on your phone and oftentimes they trick maybe our older population, taking advantage of those who aren't so savvy on how that whole thing works. Those guys, they're coming and you're gonna talk to them. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. This is the context. It's kind of dark. It's kind of hard. But as I prayed, God in his wisdom has designed that the church would suffer and the church would have to endure hardship and pain and even an element of strife and conflict. So now, surely, Paul has Timothy's attention, right? like the gazelle you've seen, and they hear the crunch of the grass under the paw of the lioness over there, and what do they do? They are zoned in, right? Paul has Timothy's attention like that, I'm quite sure. What's he gonna tell him to do? Well, that's our second point. Paul's gonna tell Timothy to swim upstream. Not downstream, not the easy way. Swim against the current. Yes, Timothy, those wicked men will do their wicked deeds. I've told you that, but not you. You're gonna do something different. You've chosen a different path. So look there at verse 10. The NASB reads, now you followed my teaching. That's a fine translation, but the ESV and the NIV, I think they do it a little better justice and they show the contrast between Timothy and the guys in verses one through nine. More clearly, here's how they read. You, however, have followed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, Timothy, yes, those guys are gonna do that, but you are on a different path. Those guys are coming, but if you will look and see the lioness coming after you, I'll tell you how to escape. Well, Paul tells Timothy, you followed, you followed me, and he has this big, long list. It's one of the longest, I think the second Maybe not the second longest, but it's long, right? It's a lot of things. And he just describes what Timothy has followed. And there's a lot of them, right? So maybe we can categorize or try to get a handle on them. We'll just consider them, verse 10 and verse 11. The verse break is actually helpful. There is a difference. Look there at verse 10. You have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Now, I want to point out to you that all those things are things that Paul does, not things that happen to Paul. This is Paul's active lifestyle, the choices that he makes, how he lives. And he says, Timothy, you've followed all of that. And we're not going to spend a really long time on the list, but suffice it to say, If Paul is walking a life of pleasing Christ in all of its different expressions, all the parts of life, like how to teach the church, you followed my teaching, how to arrange your priorities, my purpose, my purpose in life, and then how to love the saints, my patience, my love, and then even how to keep going, how to not 
run out of gas, my perseverance. Timothy's on the right track and Paul is reminding him, you've followed me so far. That sounds kind of good, right? Living the godly life sounds good, like a sunny walk on the park with blue skies and the birds are chirping and everything sounds good. And then you get to verse 11 and it sounds more like walking through a gauntlet and there's men up on the high walls throwing spears and stones at you, right? It's really different, right? I said that verse 10 is what Paul does and then verse 11 will be what's done to him. What's done to him. Look at verse 11. Verse 10 reads, you followed my, and then verse 11 continues, my persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Well, maybe your history of the book of Acts needs a reminder, like-minded, for what is meant by those three cities. In Antioch, or probably the city of city in Antioch, Paul was forced to leave the city. That's Acts 13.50. But in Iconium, it gets worse, where the Gentiles and the Jews team up in an attempt to try to stone Paul, but he flees, he gets away. And then there's an escalation in Lystra, the famous story that maybe you know. He gets to Lystra, and folks from the first two cities follow him. And they win over the crowds, and they stone Paul, If you have an imagination, you know how horrible that is. And they drag him out of the city, drag his lifeless body, they think, out of the city. It's like they're saying, get this filthy dog out of our town. We can't have him in here. And they just throw him on the ground. That's what happened in Antioch. So there's a lot more to being a Christian, a lot more to being an apostle, a lot more than being a pastor than just living a holy life in the confines of the church. Paul says, Timothy, you've started the path that I've already been on. I bear on my body the marks of this suffering and persecution. You know, maybe they didn't have super great medical care. He's probably got a bunch of scars. He lists his other sufferings elsewhere. Paul tells Timothy, you're following a guy who's all beat up, kind of ragtag from being hated and persecuted and stoned so it's going to be more difficult that's the path you're on Timothy but it's more than just sorrow and difficulty if you look at the text look at verse 11 Paul says all these things I endured In other words, they're in his past and he's still clinging faithfully to Christ with no regrets. He would do it again. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Okay, so honest talk. We're not gonna do it, but if I had you raise your hand and I asked, are you afraid to suffer for Christ? You would all raise your hand, I think. You would, and I would too. We're talking about being stoned and killed and all kinds of terrible things. But I'm reminding you that the testimony of the Apostle Paul, he says, the Lord delivered me out of them all. Paul was never alone. Jesus promised, when you suffer, listen to me, when you suffer, Jesus will be with you. 
when I suffer, when you suffer, it is normal, typical, normative, the way it is in God's wisdom for the church and individual Christians is that Jesus will be with you and you will never regret it. That's Paul's testimony. And in this case, he says, the Lord delivered me out of them all. But if you just keep reading in next week's sermon text, he knows death is knocking at his door. He knows it's coming and he did die. He was killed for his faith in Christ. Christ is with us in our sufferings and you will never regret it. There's no self-sacrifice, right? There is no sacrifice. That's the way that humanity works. We always take the thing we think is better. So when I say there's no self-sacrifice, yes, I know Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But the denial is always motivated by a reward so that the net result is always that you say, oh, I'm so blessed for giving up this thing over here, for getting the reward of Christ. Or like Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep in order to get what he can't lose. That's what Paul's saying. That's how he lived anyways. And it's not just apostles and pastors, right? The apostle talking to the pastor, but Paul says explicitly, look at verse 12, not just those in church leadership. Verse 12, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Man, does that verse haunt you? You know that when I know you know that when it stands out to you because you can't wiggle away. There's no exceptions. All, everybody who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And that doesn't even just mean like suffer. That's a different word, suffering. Paul says that in verse 11. That word is persecuted, hated, pursued. And every one of us stands at a fork in the road, right? This is what Jesus said. You got two paths. On this path over here, the path is wide, the sun shines, there's grass, it looks easy. A lot of people go down that path, sure looks good. And then on the other path, it's dark, you can't see well, the path is narrow, it's not smooth, a lot of rocks in the way, gonna be really hard, the woods are really close on both sides, you don't know what's gonna come out and get you. Not many people go that way. But over here, the big easy path, with the big gate at the end, Turns out to be you fall off the cliff into destruction and then the hard, narrow path with all the suffering and being persecuted, what's at the end of that? Eternal life with Christ forever with no regrets. You stand at the crossroads. Will God let that happen to you? Will he let you get fired? for disobeying what HR tells you? Will he let your familial relationships be permanently strained? Christmas is always hard. Thanksgiving is always hard. Relationships with my sons and daughters or my mom and dad or whoever are hard. Will you spend jail time for refusing to violate your conscience? Will your career hurt? Yes. God would do that. I prayed that he would help us to see not only the fact of a suffering church, but the beauty of a suffering church. 
the beauty of a suffering church. Let me tell you what I mean. At our house this week, our girls captured one of those giant green caterpillars, like neon green, like God painted it with a highlighter. It's incredible. It's this big. It's huge, and it's fat, like the size of a dime maybe, maybe a nickel. It's huge, and we put it in our bug catcher, which we use routinely, and it did what they do, and it went up to the top, and it hid in the corner, and then it started spinning. I don't know if you call it a chrysalis. I think you do. I know there's a difference between caterpillars and moths, okay, but it started spinning this thing, and right now it's like maybe halfway done, you know? It's almost finished. It's got this kind of cave up in the corner, but there's no door on the front of it, and you can see in there. You can see him, and he'll come out, and he'll make some more of it. And Cassie the other day was just, just stunned, and she said, I cannot believe we get to watch the beauty of this transformation. Stunning. And we were just rejoicing in this thing, you know. And uh, why is a suffering church beautiful? We sang a song, I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. It is as though even in suffering, even in persecution, God, your father who loves you, sees the transformative power, the transformation of, of metamorphosis going from caterpillar to butterfly, and he watches your life even using the hammer and the chisel of suffering to watch you be transformed into the image of Christ. A suffering church is beautiful. We shouldn't shy away from it. We should prepare our children to suffer. Do you prepare your children to suffer? Do you tell them what the cost is? They're growing up, God willing, in Christian homes, being taught the truth of the Bible, and then every Sunday they're here, all the people are, uh, you are rewarded for being a Christian being here. It's not hard to be a Christian being here. Do you prepare them, though, that there will be a cost? It will cost them. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You should prepare them before they make a profession of faith, before they receive Christian baptism. Their eyes should be wide open and they should understand that Jesus said, before you put your hand on the plow, make sure you have enough money to finish what you're trying to do. Don't look back. They gotta be prepared. Prepare your Christian children, your children, pardon me, to be Christians. Prepare them to suffer. Now, we've been thinking of physical suffering, physical persecution, and that's right, because that's the examples that Paul gives us in verse 11, and then also in verse 12, I think it's inferred, but in verse 13, he switches gears. It's a different emphasis. He's preparing Timothy, but it's a different emphasis, a different kind of difficulty. Look there at verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil men, imposters. So the word evil, what does it mean? Just one commentator said, wicked, evil, bad, base, worthless, vicious, degenerate. Evil men. And up in verse five, we had men who hold to a form of godliness or a devout appearance, but they lack the power. 
They don't have any power in their religion. They just have a shell on the outside, and it's not real. And so then, verse 13, keeping with that same theme, these tricksters, verse 13 calls them in the NASB, imposters. That word could be called, you could translate that, swindlers or cheats. These guys, they're coming. You're going to see them. You're going to talk to them. You're going to know them. You're going to know their names. Evil men and imposters. And then the end of verse 13 says that they both deceive other people and they themselves are deceived. So maybe you can picture this guy. What's he look like in your mind? He has a big smile, his teeth are white, his shirt is pressed, his slacks are smooth, his shoes have no scuffs. He walks in to this building on Sunday morning with his arm around his wife and his beautiful children and everyone looks and says, wow, what a wonderful Christian family. Evil men and imposters. I'm obviously not saying everybody who works in the door is that, God forbid. If you're visiting with us today, we don't think that about you. But I am trying to say You cannot tell an evil man, an imposter, a deceiver who's deceived in his own heart from looking at him. You cannot. He does not come in with a name badge saying, deceived, seeking deceived people or deceivable people. It does not work like that. They're smooth talkers. They're crafty. They talk a lot about the Bible. That's been one of the big themes in 1 and 2 Timothy. Using the Bible to do bad things. They've memorized parts of the Bible. They can quote chapter and verse. They're kind of exciting to talk to. Maybe they have something new that you've never thought about or never noticed before. Paul is warning Timothy about a particular kind of suffering, a particular kind of difficulty, a particular kind of persecution. The wolves are coming in. They got on their sheepskins You can't tell what they look like when they walk in the door. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And Timothy, 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 Grace Church, this is normal. I don't mean normal good, I mean typical, common, commonplace, the way it always has been in Christian churches. So what do we do about evil men and imposters. How can we make some applications about this? I'm gonna first make some applications to the church as a whole, and then I'll talk to the pastors. I'm glad you're all here today. Grace Church, you have a dual role when it comes to false teachers. First, don't become one. You know, you can start out as not a false teacher and then become a false teacher. In fact, if you look at history, that's how most of them started, right? The guys we call heretics, right? Arius didn't probably start out as a false teacher. He became a false teacher. Don't become a false teacher. Do what Timothy did and put yourself under the discipleship of an older, wiser, more seasoned Christian and walk in his or her shadow. Link your life with someone to disciple you and to a congregation. I, when we're at Crosspoint, God forbid, I don't want to hear that any one of you became a false teacher. And it happens all the time. Don't become a false teacher. Second, 
be on guard for false teachers. Don't become one and be on guard for them. As I mentioned, they're not gonna come in and be obvious. If, here's the application, in short, if somebody comes and they're talking to you about something new, something novel, something that really no one in church history has really ever understood or noticed or been aware of, you should be suspicious. It's not that something like that could never happen, but if I had to guess, 99 times, 999 times out of 1,000 in church history, something new and novel that doesn't fit with church history, doesn't fit with, like, we just read the creeds, that's partly why we have them, you should at least be suspicious. Don't gulp it down, not thinking what's in that water. Be on guard for false teachers. Be the pillar in support of the truth. God's entrusted it to the church. Second, on false teachers, let me talk to the other pastors. This is the obvious application, right? I mentioned that this is apostolic advice to pastors, right? Timothy's the pastor. This is the advice to our pastors. First, your conduct matters, not only your doctrine. That's what Paul's just been saying in verse 10 and 11. You followed my conduct, Timothy. You saw how I lived and you've been living that way. Your conduct matters. You cannot stand here and teach the people if they can't also imitate your life. Not possible. You'll lead them astray. Second, if the biblical pattern holds, you, Grace Church pastors, may well be the chief sufferers, the chiefly persecuted. Paul was the chief teacher. He was the leader. Guess what? He has the longest and hardest list of sufferings and persecutions. God wants you to be prepared for the beauty of suffering for Christ. You should count the cost. Don't be shy. Samuel Rutherford said something like, the Lord Jesus had a cross and then a crown. Why would we expect two crowns? Right? Maybe you've heard that quote. So prepare yourselves to suffer. Grace Church, help them if and when they suffer. And then third and finally on false teachers, Grace Church pastors, you're the fathers of the household. You're the dads in the place. Right? At my house, we do family worship. We all participate. I take to myself the responsibility to ensure that our children are taught the Bible faithfully. We all participate, but I invite the responsibility to myself. That's the role that God's given me. So these men, these imposters, these evil men, this is a hard application. They may deceive, at least in part or in full, people in your local congregation. I would say that not just to Grace Church, but to every church that's ever existed. There have been many people deceived by false teachers, Grace Church pastors. You need to be aware of that. Paul says, look earlier, among these men are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in our text in verse 13, Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, not trying to deceive, but deceiving, succeeding in deceiving people. So your job is something like a sheepdog, right? You know what a sheepdog is? The wolves come and the dog goes out to face the wolf. He says, no, no, no. The bear comes, the dog fights the wolf. Maybe he takes some blows, right? Bears are big, dogs are small, the dog still stands in the gap. He's willing to suffer. That's your role. There's no plan B. There's nobody else coming. 
It's you. You're it. You're the sheepdogs for the congregation that Jesus put to guard the sheep pen. You can't neglect your responsibility. Brothers, stand in the gap. Fulfill the role that God gave you. Fulfill your ministry. Please the Lord Jesus Christ. Guard the family from those who would come in and do them harm. Well, Paul's warned Timothy. My goodness, that's a, that's a, that's a stiff order. There's suffering's coming just around the bend. Won't be long. Things are going to go from bad to worse. Now, he's going to tell him how to prepare. Not only prepare your mind, be aware of what will happen, but let me tell you what to do. Let me fill up your boats with all kinds of provisions. So he tells Timothy to gird up his loins. This is our third and final point. Gird up your loins, Timothy. Now, you may never have heard that expression before. It's, uh, it occurs in 1 Peter 1. That's the reason I know it. And uh, if you imagine ancient Israel, the men would have worn like a long robe. And if they had to do any kind of physical activity, it would have been very difficult for them to do that with that long robe draped down, dangling around their feet. And so they would take the robes and they would bring it up and they would tuck it in something like a belt, enabling them to run and be active freely, right? In other words, it means prepare for action. Get ready to act. That's our third point. Well, if you look at verse 7, sorry, verse 14, pardon me, again, you have another contrast. I mentioned before that a couple of translations for verse 10 say, you, however, if you look at verse 14, now the NASB with the same exact words says, you, however. Again, we have another contrast. So it's like Paul goes into saying, oh, this is going to be hard, this is going to be hard, this is going to be hard. Oh, but not you, Timothy. You need to do something else. That's not for you. You're not going to be one of those guys. And what does he tell him? While the false teachers are doing their thing, what's Timothy supposed to do? Well, Paul just reminds him of what he was taught from childhood. He tells him, hang on tight to what you were taught from your childhood and what you believed then. You were raised in like, like, like a flower in a field all day, sucking up the nutrients from the soil and the sun's life-giving warmth. You've been doing that your whole life, Timothy. This is how you were raised. I'm reminding you the things that you've been taught your whole life. You don't stand now as the pastor over the church at Ephesus, in the church, over the church, yes to both, at Ephesus in a vacuum. That didn't happen by accident. There's some reasons that you're standing where you're standing. I want you to remember where you came from. This is the preparation that Paul gives him. So look at verse 14. You, however, continue in these things. Knowing from whom you learned them. All right, now, from whom you learned them. Now, I'll just tell you, confession time, I always misinterpreted this verse. Who's the from whom? From whom did Timothy learn these things? I don't know what, like, if you just answer the question in your mind, who do you have there? Well, I told you I got it wrong. I thought it was Paul. <laughs> I thought it was Paul. Because earlier in this same letter, Paul says, the things, Timothy, that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, etc., etc." So Paul did definitely teach Timothy. But why do I say that's wrong? The answer is the from whom is plural. It's plural. 
And the NIV, if you have that in your lap, picks it up. It says this, because you know those from whom you learned it. You know those, plural, from whom you learned it. Not just, I mean, Paul might have been included, but there was at least one other person. From whom did Timothy learn, plural? Who are they? The next verse makes it clear. Man, context, right? Thank you, brother, for telling us, again, context matters a great deal. Who are they? Well, the next verse makes it clear because Paul says he's known these things from childhood. Now, I don't know for sure, but I sort of suspect that Paul probably didn't know Timothy in just childhood, right? That seems really unlikely. I mean, it would have been possible, but not the picture you get from the book of Acts at all. All right, so who are they? Well, Paul's already named some people who are a part of Timothy's childhood, right? Earlier in the letter, he's named his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. That would have been the ones who taught him. He says so earlier in the same letter. Uh, They're the ones who have taught you these things. Hang fast to what you've known since childhood. You have deep roots, Timothy. God himself has been working in your life since you've been born causing you to first cling to Christ and then continue despite, no, despite whatever the difficulties are, sufferings and persecutions and everything else. Cultivating you, Timothy, like a vine in a vineyard, pruning, shaping, making fruitful since you were born. Listen, if you're a Christian today by way of extrapolation, it's the same, Right? all the details in your life, whether he has you serving as a pastor, Grace Church pastors, or whether he has you serving as a mom or you're in college or you're a five-year-old kid, right? You're never too young for the great keeper of the vine to shepherd and cultivate. Paul says, Timothy, God's been doing that for your whole life. Hang tight to what you were taught. There's some preparation, Timothy. Now, We're going to get to the sacred writings in a second, which is basically how we'll conclude our sermon, the sacred writings. But I'm going to pause for a second to talk to one demographic of our church, really maybe two demographics. That would be the single moms and maybe also grandmothers who have grandchildren in the same shape that Timothy was without a dad. So I say single moms. Maybe by extrapolation, moms who are married to a dad still, but the, the, the little Timothy is not getting instruction at the house, okay? Now, if you read the book of Acts, I mean, I have to let me explain myself, why would I do that? If you read the book of Acts, Timothy's dad was a Gentile. His mom was Jewish, and his dad was a Gentile. And it's really likely that Timothy did not receive instruction from his dad. Okay, now why do you say that? One reason is that Timothy wasn't circumcised. Acts tells us that. You'd think generally the norm is that if you had a Jewish mom and dad, their boy would have been circumcised, right? Well, Timothy's dad was a Gentile. It seems unlikely to me that he was receiving instruction from his Gentile father who also didn't care to have him circumcised. Not likely. Some commentators suppose that Timothy's dad might have, might be, might have died. Not, a, not, just, not necessarily an abdicating dad, but he could have died. That's also possible. The other reason I really think Timothy wasn't getting instruction from his dad is that Paul 
earlier when I mentioned he says, uh, he mentions Lois and Eunice by name. He doesn't mention his dad. Wouldn't that be weird if I said, Tristan, remember that your whole life you've received instruction from your mom. And I just didn't say anything about Tommy. It's possible that he, Paul, could have done that, but not very likely, right? Not likely. What's the application? What am I saying? Generally, all commentators agree, Timothy wasn't getting biblical teaching from his dad. All right. Why do I want to talk to the moms whose husband is not shepherding the child or the grandmothers who have a grandchild whose father is not shepherding the child? I don't know if you can see where I'm going. Timothy's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. In other words, the fact that Timothy's dad was not filling the role that God gave him to teach Timothy the scriptures did not impede God from giving Timothy everything that he needed. God taught Timothy. Yes, God calls dads to teach their children, yes. And yes, the Psalms say that God is a father to the fatherless. Timothy was not left without moms, single moms. When you're the one bearing the load, you've got the heavy backpack on your shoulders, you're teaching your children the truth of the Bible. The life of Timothy ought to be an encouragement to you that there is zero reason that God is limited in his, I'll use the vine example, doing the cultivation of your boys and girls to bring them to Christ and give them everything that they need because God is their father. His big heart can't be stopped because of either the sin of a man or the death of a man. The sacred writings. We're gonna make three observations about the sacred writings. What does Paul say about them? We're gonna handle them in doctrinal categories. There are three. The first is Big word, Mike Packard was making fun of me this morning for using this word in our grow hour. Christocentricity. Big word, Christ is at the center. Christocentricity. Second word, second doctrine, inspiration. Jordan said that this morning in grow also. And then third, sufficiency. Christocentricity, inspiration, sufficiency. What does Paul say about these sacred writings that Timothy has known from his childhood? Look at verse 15. He says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Last two words receive the emphasis, Christ Jesus, right? All right, so we have, I want you to think for a minute. Think. When was this written? Sometime in the first century. Did Lois and Eunice, grandma and mom, have a New Testament as they taught Timothy from his childhood? The answer to that question is no, they did not. What are the sacred writings that Paul is writing about to Timothy now? They are the Old Testament, right? All right, that's the first thing. When grandma and mom are teaching little Timothy in all the ways that they would have done it, they were teaching him the Old Testament. Agreed? Yes. All right. Now, 
the Christocentricity is crystal clear. Look at the verse. Those same sacred writings are able to make you wise unto salvation, you get saved. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Man, it's one of the most clear, the whole Bible, but in this case, particularly the Old Testament, points to Christ, is about Christ. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Jesus also said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. I mean, we could go on, right? These are all from our grow this morning, praise the Lord. There's no way to wriggle out from the fact that Paul tells Timothy, you got saved putting your faith in Christ when you read Leviticus. No way around it. That's definitely what he's saying here. So when, you read, when, he, when Timothy read Genesis, he said, ah, oh, the seed of the woman will someday crush the head of the serpent. Praise the Lord. He's coming. Let's hope in him. Or when he read Genesis again, the seed of Abraham would come and in him all the nations would be blessed. When he read Exodus, the law on, on, on Mount Sinai would come and no man would keep it and every man would deserve God's judgment. Leviticus would come and you would have the day of atonement and the pure and spotless lamb would stand there and it would be slaughtered and offered up to God producing a smell in his nostrils the Messiah would come and he would bear away our sins, he would be the scapegoat, who would take our sins away from us. Numbers would come when Timothy was taught numbers and the people of God would wander around in the wilderness and they would fail and fail and fail and they would grumble and complain and not believe and God would judge them. And they were shown to be insufficient as law keepers and insufficient as his sons. A new son would have to come. Numbers leaves you longing. Deuteronomy would come and you would have the law recapitulated and you would have blessings on this side and curses on this side and everyone who fails to abide by everything written in the book of the law would be cursed. And we would all be lawbreakers and one man would come and keep the law. Joshua would come when Timothy read Joshua and the captain of the Lord's armies would appear and conquer on behalf of the people, cross the Jordan into the promised land, and he would bring them there. Judges would come, and you would have all the judges of Israel standing in the gap to do righteousness on behalf of all the people of God. Ruth would come, and you would have Ruth's son, who would eventually become David's grandfather, father, can't remember which, but he would come, and the Davidic line would come. We could go on, right? The whole Old Testament, Paul says, is meant to do something to you. It did it in your life, Timothy, Grace Church. It's meant to do something to you. It's meant to give you the sort of wisdom that says, oh, the Messiah has come. He's taken away all my sins. I'm gonna put my faith in him. Timothy, you've been doing this your whole life. the Christocentricity of the sacred writings. The second attribute, inspiration. All right, now I don't know which translation you have. The word is God-breathed. Some translations I think say inspired. The NASB does say that, inspired by God. But the word is God-breathed, right? And I insist on it because it's probable that Paul coined the term. He made it up, right? We make up words all the time. You smush two words together and you got a new word. Paul probably did that. You can look at like thousands and thousands of documents written in Greek 
that were contemporaneous with the Apostle Paul, and you can't find that word, God breathed, anywhere else in any of those documents. Paul probably made it up. And I'm bringing it out because I think Paul meant to make a mental image in your mind. That's why he put those words together. It's as though the very breath of the sovereign creating fountain of all of life breathed out the words of the page, the Bible. They're God-breathed. They are, to use the doctrinal category, inspired. The Bible... contains zero errors in its original manuscripts. None. It is perfect. As Jesus would say, every jot and tittle, Matthew 5, all of it given by God. We, we joke a lot. I know what we mean about the white stuck together pages in the book of the 12, the minor prophets. God forbid we'd be a church like that. Don't let us, Lord, be a church like that. The book of the 12 is inspired by God, breathed out by God, given to you more valuable than gold. The inspiration of the scriptures. Now, forever and now, the opponents of God have hated this doctrine. They hate it. Because they know that the inspiration of the scripture, the Bible, is their problem. They know that. The Bible is what stands in the way of the prosperity gospel and same-sex relationships and abortion and transgenderism and worship of the state and you name it. Anything that are, that those with the big microphones in our society want to free us from or free us to, they are restrained by the Bible. The Bible is inspired by God and for 2,000 years or really 3,500, the people of God have been clinging to the text of the scripture, not fearfully clinging, but clinging like you would cling to gold, right? A precious deposit and treasure. It's the Bible that's inspired by God. And I can't help read one commentator's quote on trying to fit why is Paul talking about the inspiration of the scripture in this context? There's going to be suffering, there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be wicked men, imposters, they'll be deceiving people, they'll be being deceived, but the Bible's inspired and it's useful. All right, well, here's this one commentator's take on it. The point of the adjective God-breathed or inspired here is surely to emphasize the authority of the scriptures as coming from God and to indicate that they have a divinely intended purpose. Get this, this is the key phrase. A purpose related to his plan of salvation. They are therefore to be interpreted in line with this purpose and not in the fanciful ways favored by the opponents. In other words, God did not inspire the Bible to use as cannon fodder to shoot at other people and to get in fanciful arguments and make up theories and things that are not helpful to anybody else. Paul says don't wrangle about words, these theories about genealogies. He's named a lot of examples like this in First and Second Timothy. No, 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 no. What's the Bible for? Why do you read it? Do you get up in the morning and read the Bible? Do you read it at night? Do you teach it to your kids? What's it for? In our text, Paul says God breathed it out to make you wise, to abandon foolishness, to make you wise so that you would 
put your faith, to use the words of the text, to put your faith in Christ Jesus for salvation. In other words, the Bible is God's reconciliation instrument to take people like you and bring us close back to him through what he accomplished in his son on the cross. That's what the Bible's for, and that's how you should use it. The Bible is God-breathed. And our third attribute is the last part of today's message is the word sufficiency, the sufficiency of scripture. Now, the inspiration of the scriptures, I would guess, for many of us, is more familiar. Maybe not so much on the sufficiency part. What does that mean? And why did I say it? Well, let your eyes fall on verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God, that's God-breathed, and, here's sufficiency, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Profitable, the scriptures are profitable, so that you, Timothy, can be adequate and equipped for every good work. In other words, the scripture does things. It's sufficient. It can accomplish a purpose. It can do a thing. It can give you what you need. It's like Lewis and Clark, right? They needed to get across the water. What did they need? A boat, right? The boat is profitable to get you across the water so that you can be adequate, you can be equipped. Paul says, Timothy, the Bible is profitable to make you adequate and equipped. So the picture of the man who's equipped from knowing his Bible and knowing also how to use it, because you know that's different, right? Knowing the Bible and knowing how to use it are not the same. But the man who is equipped to use the Bible, the picture is not like, has tragically happened so many times when soldiers in wars would be not trained at all and they would get thrown out on the front lines just to be chewed up and gunned down. Not that soldier. Not that. The picture here is the soldier who's been groomed for battle from childhood, right? You've seen movies like this. Boys in military societies groomed for battle from their childhood. Timothy, from your childhood, you've known the sacred scriptures. These men have been equipped, they've been trained. We had some friends of ours in North Carolina, their son went to be a Navy SEAL. They didn't tell us anything they weren't supposed to, I don't think, but man, that kind of training was insane. Those guys were trained and equipped through grueling preparations and training exercises. Only like a fraction's fraction of the guys who start get to finish. They're the best of the best. These guys have accrued a massive amount of experience in real battles. They're battle-hardened. The scriptures, Timothy, the scriptures great, scriptures, Grace Church pastors, they are what can make you adequate and equipped. The Bible. In the Bible, God's given you everything that you need to do what he's called you to do. There's not another fountain. There's no other resource. There's not a, like a workaround. You can't be a Navy SEAL if you try and get in some other kind of way. No, there's one way. God's given a way for you to be adequate and equipped. There's no plan B. They'll enable Timothy to fulfill his charge, to teach the congregation, to reprove them when they've gone astray, to instruct or, 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 or teach them, and also to train them in righteousness. So what does Timothy need most? What do you, Grace Church, pastors need the most? 
How should you spend your time? Maybe that's kind of the right question, right? You spend your time on what you think you need the most. Books, seminars, conferences, seminaries, Bible software, better training. Paul tells Timothy the thing you need the very most is the word of God that he breathed out and God's purpose is to equip you through it. So I'm calling you to devote yourselves to it. Like when you have elder meetings, brothers, and you're talking back and forth, talk about the Bible. Make decisions that come from the Bible. Don't become men who drift far away and then now we think we're so wise and experienced that we can make all these judgment calls and we don't really consult the book. No, no, that's not what Paul says the Bible is for. And Grace Church, it's the same for you, right? It's not just, we can make applications for the church. We sure can. How about, what do I do with this parenting? How do I be faithful in the workplace? What about my financial stewardship? What do I do with my money or the money I wish I had? How about freedom from addiction or sexual fidelity or whatever else it is? Do you have problems? you have sufferings? you have temptations? What are you going to do about them? You should turn your face to what God has given you in his great heart of love to equip you for what you need to do. So let's summarize. I'm mainly gonna end in talking to Grace Church's pastors again. I think that's fitting based on the text. You remember Lewis and Clark, right? They hadn't started yet. They're getting prepared. They know there's gonna be some hard parts. One guy died. Grace Church, pastors. As long as you're a pastor here, there's gonna be people who are propagating bad doctrine. It's not gonna go away, right? That'll be a problem you have to deal with ongoingly, forever. And God has called you to be the sheepdogs, to fight off the wolves and the bears. I don't mean like, be gone with them. I mean, Paul says elsewhere that if you reprove them and rebuke them in the presence of everybody, maybe they can be restored. So yes to that. But God is calling you to make sure none of the sheep get, the sheep get carried off into the woods and eaten alive. That's God's job for you. And you probably suffer carrying it out. I, you, probably suffer carrying that out. And Jesus says, if you're persecuted, what should you do? Step one. Rejoice, rejoice. James 1, what do you do when you encounter various trials? Consider it all joy. So it's suffering, yes. Oh, tears, yes. And rejoicing that you would then stand in a long line of faithful Christians and the prophets of old who experience the same sufferings and don't regret it one bit and have now only the smile of God coming on them. So the first call is embrace suffering. Grace Church, embrace suffering. Pastors, embrace suffering. It's typical. It's part of God's good design, like the chrysalis, to look and observe, and God's heart just delights to watch, as even through hardship, you're transformed in the image of Christ. And the second plea is to, I mean, it's <laughs> kind of next week's sermon passage. I mean, it is, not kind of, it is next week's sermon text, What's Paul gonna tell Timothy to do? I mean, in our, in our passage, he takes the ball and he puts it on the tee, right? Whoever preaches next week, he smashes that ball down the fairway. What's the 
imperative, the command. Preach the word. Preach it. It's God-inspired, and it is what the people of God need. It's what you need to lead the church. It's what the people of God need to be fed with in order to grow in Christ's likeness and be faithful in the things that God's called them to do. Don't abandon the Bible. Preach the word. Give yourselves to it. And my last reminder is that as you preach the Bible, like you got a lot of people preaching the Bible, right? Some of them preach it in a way that does not bring a smile to the face of God. I just remind you that Paul tells Timothy that the Old Testament that he grew up listening to from mom and grandma led him to faith in Christ Jesus. It's Christ, right? He's the one you ought to preach to the people. Grace Church, listen to me. If these guys whom I love and you love, I don't mean these guys, but if they come and they preach to you some other gospel, I remind you of Galatians chapter one. God forbid, but if anybody, I can't say it that way, I gotta say if anybody preaches some other gospel, let him be accursed. It's your job, church. Help these men to continue to preach the Bible and to preach it in a way that helps you and everybody else to put their faith in Christ and so have salvation. Let's pray.